to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians now, Ephesians chapter 1. We have been slowly going through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We started a few weeks ago. This is the fourth uh, week in Ephesians, and we come now to verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. We'll back up and we'll read, starting in verse 3, the end of this great, this great prayer that Paul has here at the beginning of Ephesians. So draw your attention to the reading and the preaching of God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him indeed. Let us pray together in our time in his word. Lord, we thank you for... Thank you for this word. Thank you for the privilege we have now of getting to sit underneath the proclamation of your word. We ask that your spirit would come. And Lord, uh, we know that uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by your word. We pray that you'd help us not only to hear, but to hear in faith. Lord, uh, we ask that you would bless the children who are here as well, the little theologians. We pray that you would expand their hearts and their minds and, and the knowledge of who you are. Uh, that you are, the, you are the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are our good and faithful shepherd, our redeemer, our hope, our treasure. And Holy Spirit, you are our guide, our teacher, our comforter, our counselor. You are with us, Lord. You seal us. You seal us unto the day of redemption. You, you are the mark on each of our lives that we belong to our Heavenly Father. We pray that these truths in you, Holy Trinity, you, Holy Trinity, would minister to each one of us here today. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we ask for your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was one of the nights, it was one of those nights that I will remember for the rest of my life. I was with my lovely wife, and we were sitting outside at the Piazza San Marco in Rome, Italy, enjoying what would later become one of the best meals of our lives. The sound of the Trevi Fountain could be heard in the distance. The ambient lighting was perfect. The food was authentic Italian food. It was the kind of authentic Italian food that actually makes you stop eating for a brief second because you are overwhelmed with the flavor. The subtle hint of fresh saffron, the buttery garlic sauce that you know was not out of a can. 
the pasta so fresh that you can picture the chef hand-rolling it that afternoon so that it could be served to you hot and fresh. For reasons that I didn't know then, but I now know, eating a meal like that can be somewhat of a spiritual experience, which is to say it can be worshipful. It can be a time when you are overwhelmed with the goodness and the richness of God as you reflect upon everything that went into that meal ultimately came from him, ultimately came from his mind, his creation, and he gave it to us to enjoy as his image bearers. And I point that out because in scripture, scripture also makes the comparison between the enjoyment of fine, rich, savory, delicious food, makes the comparison between that and the enjoyment of tasting God's spiritual food that he has for us. Psalm 19, which called us to worship, it says there that the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey, even the drippings from a honeycomb. Psalm 34 tells us, actually commands us to taste and see that the Lord is good. God invites us in Isaiah 55. Come, he says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Buy, buy wine and milk without money and without price, God says. Indeed, he then says right after that, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Jesus as well says that we are not to labor for the food that perishes, but we are to labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to us. Do you know this food? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? The section that we're slowly going through over, the, over this past month is like that fine Italian meal that we are meant to savor each bite of what God has before us. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, is some of the most succulent, some of the most delicious spiritual food that God has prepared for us, friends, to feast upon together. It is a feast where his profound goodness, his blessing toward us, he is, he is putting that before us over and over again in this section. It began with that statement in verse 3. And if you have your Bible open, look at it with me. It began with that statement in verse 3 that God our Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing possible from the highest throne, the highest place possible, which is from his heavenly throne, Paul says. That God our Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then, and then in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus that we would be his holy and blameless children. Right away, we learn here in Ephesians 1 just what kind of father God is toward us. God is giving. He is gracious. God the Father, the Father is giving. The Father is gracious. The Father is loving. Taking the initiative himself to do this for us. According to the purpose of his will, Paul says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has given to us in Jesus. That's who God the Father is. Paul starts off with what the Father has done for us in salvation. Taste, taste the goodness of your Father. 
Then last week we saw what God the Son has done in redeeming us both from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. He has redeemed us so that we are forgiven of our sin, and he has redeemed us in that he has freed us from sin's power. We are forgiven. We are freed from bondage to sin in Jesus. And that phrase, in, in Jesus, or what Paul says again and again, in him, in him, that, that's the ribbon. That's the ribbon, if you will, that's tied around this great gift of salvation that the Father has given to us. Union with Christ. We are united to Jesus. That is our identity as believers. We are saints. We are adopted children of the Father. We are united to his Son. We have this living, vibrant, radiant union with the resurrected Son of God, which is the beginning, the beginning of God's plan to reconcile all things to the Lord Jesus. You and I are the first fruits of the redemption of the reconciliation that God is accomplishing. It started with him reconciling us, and now that plan in verses 9 and 10 has been revealed. It's revealed as the, as the meta-narrative, the, the big story, the primary story throughout history. God's plan is that the work that the Son has accomplished, the Father is not going to waste that, but on the contrary, that work that the Son has accomplished, it's the only hope for our broken and sinful and dying world reconciliation through Jesus. There is no other way, no other hope for our world. And if that wasn't clear enough, Paul then says in verse 11, in Jesus, the Father also chose us. He chose us to be his inheritance, Paul says, having predestined us for this purpose. So right away, what I want you to see is how closely the Father and the Son work together. They work together for you and for me. They're working together to make us their very own inheritance, to make us their very own joy. And it's amazing. Finally, we come to today the role of the Holy Spirit in our redemption. So do you see here, do you see here the Trinitarian artistry, the Trinitarian symmetry, the Trinitarian work, the beauty, the art, the masterpiece of salvation that our great God has done for us? The Father, the Son, the Spirit, all working together in unity and in harmony to accomplish our redemption. It doesn't get any more amazing than that. And this, friends, this is the feast for our souls. This is the feast that the Trinity lays before us to satisfy our hearts to enlarge our thinking about God, to galvanize us, to stir us up to praise, to worship, to unceasing and inexpressible joy in this great God. This is the feast that God has for you to savor today and every day of your walk, of your communion with, he with him. Now, little theologians, here's your task for today, kids. I want you to draw a picture of what moves you to worship and praise God, kids. What is it that moves you to give thanks to God, to praise him? It could be hiking in the mountains. It could be eating your favorite dessert. It could be going to church. It could be all of those things. You can draw a picture of you doing all of those, th those things. And kids, today, you and your parents are going to have the same question to answer. The same question. So you... Kids, little theologians, you ask your parents later on and see if they were listening 
just like you are listening. Here's the main question for us today that I want us to answer. It's very straightforward. How do we become a Christian? How do we become a Christian? What does God use to make us his adopted sons and daughters? What means, what method does God use to make us a Christian? That's the question that I want us to pose and that we're going to answer. How does someone become a Christian? To answer this, we turn to the role of the Holy Spirit here in verses 13 and 14. And the main idea in this section is there in verse 13. Do you see it there? The main idea is that by the Holy Spirit, we are sealed. We are sealed by God. We are sealed in our salvation. So we're going to unpack this notion of sealing, this illustration of sealing. This is where the quest to answer our question, how does someone become a Christian? It begins here by understanding what, what Paul is saying about sealing. Three aspects of this that will help us to understand how someone becomes a Christian. The marks of sealing, the purpose of sealing, and the guarantee of sealing. The marks, the purpose, and the guarantee. So listen carefully and let's go through this together. First, the marks of sealing. This is the third illustration that Paul has given to his readers to help them understand the significance of what God has done. And you got to remember that he's using these illustrations for the Ephesian church because they, they were prominent in the ancient world. The first image was that of adoption, still prominent in our world. And what we said when we talked about God the Father adopting us is that this was profound because in the ancient world, children were viewed as less than human, essentially. Children could be cast aside. They could be many times babies that were unwanted would be, would be brought to the trash heaps to be left there. And this picture that God is adopting us, is he's redeeming, he's redeeming the notion of, of children here. He's redeeming us uh, as his children. Paul used that as a profound image of, the, of our relationship with God. The second illustration that he used was the, was the image of redemption there in verse 7. And how in the ancient world, slaves were everywhere. There were upwards of 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And if you were a slave, you would stay a slave unless what? Unless you were redeemed. And the only way that you could be redeemed, if you could not purchase your own freedom, was by a benefactor who paid for their freedom, which Jesus has done for us. Paul, Paul equating the redemption that they would have known in the ancient world with what God has done in redeeming us. Jesus paid the cost for our redemption with his death, his resurrection on our behalf. Now we come to the third, and it's the image of sealing. Sealing which would have resonated with the Ephesians. It would have resonated with them much like if Paul was to say today, our signature. Our signature has basically replaced the notion of sealing, although people still use seals in our culture. But every day, in everyday life, we use our signatures. Our signatures are used in transactions and so forth. And so in the ancient world, sealing was the mark of ownership. It was the mark of ownership, whether property or a decree coming from a ruler, for example. A wealthy man would place a seal on his property so that everybody knew who it belonged to. 
a political official would include his seal on the decree that was to be applied throughout the region or throughout his land. We saw this at the birth of Jesus, if you remember, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all of the Roman world that a census was to be taken. This decree would have included the seal of Augustus, and so it was applicable throughout. It was the king's word. It was his authority represented. And that's, that's perhaps the most well-known use of seal is the use of the king's ring that would, use, that would be used to signify his ruling, his authority, and that rule and that authority could not be broken. This is the imagery. All of, all of these different uses is the imagery that Paul is invoking about the Holy Spirit sealing us in our salvation. The sealing is the sign of the Spirit's rule and authority, his ownership of us, the believer. So the, the seal of redemption marks ownership, uh, authority of God by his spirit on us. So what are the marks of the sealing? How do we know? When I say that, what are the marks of this? How do we know that we've been sealed? That's the question. First, he says in verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So what is the first mark? The first mark is hearing the gospel. Notice that Paul shifted from we in the previous verses to now he uses you. He shifts from the first person to the second person because he is talking specifically to the Ephesians. The Ephesians' own conversion by hearing the gospel. Which, if you remember what we said about Ephesus, this would have been quite remarkable given, given the city's obsession with idols. Particularly Artemis, the pagan superstition that drove the economy in Ephesus. Paul's drawing that attention because he wants them to understand the power of the gospel at work. The power of the gospel, friends, is able to topple spiritual strongholds that would keep people captive, like the Ephesians. It's strong enough that even pagans like the Ephesians are able to be converted by this gospel. It's strong enough for them. It's strong enough for you and I as well. Nothing is too strong, nothing is too powerful, nothing is too dark to withstand the power of God in bringing sinners to conversion. And Paul says that the way God does this is through hearing. Isn't that, isn't that peculiar? Isn't that odd? The role of hearing. Hearing cannot be overstated in Scripture. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. A sower went out to sow a seed, and some fell along the path, and the birds came immediately, and they devoured that seed. Other seed fell amongst, among shallow soil. Immediately it, it, it sprouted up, but withered away under the heat of the sun. Still, there was other seed that fell among thorns, and immediately it sprung up as well. But then the thorns choked out that seed, and it withered away. And then some other seed fell in fertile soil, good soil, and it grew tall, and it bore fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. That's what Jesus says. He says that again and again in his parables. When he's using these parables, these illustrations of what the kingdom of God is like, how someone becomes part of the kingdom of God here with the parable of the soils. Those different soils, Jesus goes on to say, represent the different responses we have to hearing, to hearing the gospel. And what that tells us is that what we're doing here today then, friends, is not 
is not a neutral event. It's not a neutral encounter with the word of God. Because when the word of God and the gospel is going out, is it coming into our hearts? Better yet, how is it coming into our hearts? Are we hearing it in faith, in other words? This is the importance of hearing. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes, he writes this to the Colossians. He says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God and truth. Right there, I want to draw your attention to what he says about hearing and the fruit that results from that hearing. That the gospel is not merely meant to be heard, but it's meant to, as the parable of the, sow, of the sower makes clear, it is meant to bring forth fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. This also tells us that it's not, the, it's not just the initial hearing of the gospel, but it's the ongoing hearing that helps with the fruit bearing process. Jesus says of the seed sown in the, thir- in, the, in the fertile soil that these are those who hear and they understand the word. They hold fast to it with a good and honest heart. <coughs> and they begin to bear fruit more and more. So hearing the gospel is essential. Hearing the gospel. The gospel The gospel being our guilt, his grace, Jesus' righteousness to us, our sin to him, our death to him, his life to us, received by faith alone. It's hearing the good news that in in Christ, God does not count our sins against us. Though our sins be many, his mercy is more. And what we have to understand is that that's not not the warm-up band for Christianity. That is Christianity. That is the main event, hearing the gospel again and again. It's not only the beginning of the journey, but it's the end as well. John Bunyan, reflecting upon his own sinfulness and how as a young man, God had delivered him from a life of debauchery, a life of blasphemy. This is what he writes in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Listen to what Bunyan says about this. He says, quote, remember also the word, the word, the word, I say, upon which the word, which the Lord has caused you to hope. If you have sinned against light, if you are tempted to blaspheme, if you are drowned in despair, if you think God fights against you, or if heaven is hid from your eyes, remember the word that it was out of all of them the Lord had delivered me. Not only does God deliver, but we keep on remembering, we keep on reflecting, we keep on hearing that same word that he delivers us. The good news that God delivers us. He delivers those who hear and believe. That's the second mark there. Believing in him. Hearing the gospel, the word of truth, and believed in him, Paul says. And the way that he phrases this He is drawing our attention to the medium, the medium that God uses to save us. It is by faith, faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that's to say that it is not by works. It's not by keeping the commandments as what would have been said in Paul's day. Or by being a good person as we used to say 
or by feeling that I am a good person, or that by feeling a certain way about a certain subject. These have become the new norms of self-righteousness and legalism in our day, that these can divert us away from Christ alone. It is faith and faith alone. It is Christ and it is Christ alone. Faith is the medium. Christ is the object of our faith. Faith, our hope is in him. We are looking to him for our deliverance. So the question then becomes, where do, where, where do we look when questions about our righteousness, our identity, our acceptance, our hope, our peace, our joy, where do we derive those from? Paul's saying it comes from Christ and Christ alone. He says you are in him and he is in you. He says that in him you are the righteousness of God. He says that no one is good except God alone. But guess what? We have become one spirit with this God. He says to come unto him and you will, you, will, you will be received. You will find rest and peace, hope and joy in him. So where is your faith? What are you placing your faith, your hope, your trust in? Where are you tempted to be diverted away from Jesus? Remember, remember where you are. You are in him. Trust in him. Abide in him. These are the two marks of sealing, of being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Hearing the gospel and believing in Christ. Trusting in him and in him alone. These are the two marks that he highlights. Hearing and believing. These are the primary ways that God makes us his own. The primary ways he uses to make us his own. Everything we heard about in verses 3 through 12, now we're seeing it's ultimately applied through the ministry of God's word that the Spirit uses to convert us. So those are the marks, hearing and believing. Now look with me at the purpose of the sealing. Notice how Paul describes it, that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. Right away, that should invoke for us what the Old Testament says about the coming of the Holy Spirit. All throughout the prophets, the promise was of the coming Holy Spirit. This would be the marker of the last days, Joel chapter 2. It would be the dawning of God's recreation that would eventually end with the Spirit covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is Ezekiel 40 through 48. But most directly... Most directly applied to what Paul's saying here about the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the promise of the new covenant. The new covenant cleansing and the indwelling that the Spirit would accomplish. We heard that read earlier by Roberts in Ezekiel 36. The days were coming that God would cleanse his people from their sins and from their idols. That he would give them a new heart and a new spirit. That he would remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. The imagery being there of a dead heart and an alive heart. So that, God says, we could walk in his ways. We could walk in obedience and delight in him. And all of this would happen. All this would take place, God says, so that they, they shall be my people and I will be their God. That rich covenantal language echoing Genesis 17 with, with Abraham. But there's also Jeremiah 31 that says this, that the new heart and the new spirit are part of the new covenant. But also Jeremiah adds that a new mind 
is also part of that new covenant. A new mind that is filled with the knowledge of God. There in Jeremiah 31, he says, And they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, God says. This will all take place when he makes, he makes a new covenant with his people. Which tells us, friends, that the purpose of the Spirit's sealing is to convey, to convey these blessings, these realities to us. That we have forgiveness, we have peace with God, that we have intimacy with God, we have communion with Him. That we have security, we're accepted with God, that we, we are, our faith is authentic and therefore we have assurance with Him. Remember that seals were used as a mark of ownership and identity. They were, they were a mark of, of ownership and identity that something belonged to the king. And they were used to establish the authenticity, the validity that this had come from the king. That it was the king's and that it had come from him. So how does that apply to the, heel, or to the seal of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit, friends, testifies to us belonging to the king and what we have from the king the seal of the holy spirit is to testify to us that we belong to the king and testify to the blessings that we have from him this is what paul means when he says in romans chapter 8 that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father the Spirit himself, Paul says, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is the seal of the Holy Spirit at work. Or in Galatians 4, it says this, Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his, of his Son into our hearts, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's a, it's, a, it's a profound concept, the sealing of the Holy Spirit to testify with our spirit. So stick with me here, stick with me, because what Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit in our lives, friends, wants to make it abundantly clear to us of who we belong to and what we are in him. What we, who we belong to and what we are as a result of being possessed by him. That is clear, that is clear through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So what we're, what we're essentially talking about here is the experience, the experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The experience of the Spirit. The experience is meant to remind us that we belong to our Heavenly Father. And that what we are in Christ is not just some abstract concept, but it is meant to be it is meant to be the experience of our hearts, of our spirits. This is very much rooted and grounded in the word, of course. What God says, what God says about us, the spirit aims to, to impact that, to impart that into our hearts. It means to, to press these into our, our hearts because these, these are our most pressing issues as as sinners, as those who have been saved by God. The questions of who we are and what we are. These questions of identity. The Spirit means to press the truth about that into our hearts. Into our new hearts that we might experience the peace that we have with the Father. The communion that we have with Him and the Son. The security, the assurance that we have. 
These are not meant just to be theological concepts. They're not meant to just be words that sound good, but they are meant to be the new reality that we love and that we experience. That's the purpose, the purpose of the sealing imagery here. And when we think about that, it's meant to be, friends, profoundly applicable. Because you think about what is the, what is, what is the opposite of these? What is, the, what is contrary to security, for example? Well, it's insecurity. And so if we struggle with insecurity, we are struggling ultimately with our identity of who God says that we are and the security that we have in him. If we're struggling with doubt or we're struggling with fear of rejection from others, it's because we are not understanding our identity in Christ, the Father's love and affection for us. If we're struggling with addiction, if we're struggling with enslavement to functional saviors, where we turn when we're unstable emotionally or when we're tired, when we're stressed, these sorts of things, we've forgotten, who, we've, we've forgotten our identity. We've forgotten who is the true Savior, who will truly deliver us. If we struggle with the fear of missing out, not being included, not being accepted by others, the struggle with self-justification or virtue signaling that we engage in because we desperately want to be included, we desperately want to be well thought of by, by outsiders, we are, acting, we are acting outside of our identity in Christ that the Spirit wants us to be sure of, friends. And these are the emotional struggles that we all face. And here is the good news. God's sealing of us with his spirit is meant to combat, to combat these emotional struggles that we have. I can't tell you how liberating that was for me when I realized that all of the inward struggles that I have, they're not immutable. They're not hopeless to change. But through understanding the union that I have with Jesus, the communion that I have with the Father, and the working of the Spirit, the working of the Spirit pressing God's truth deep into my heart, the shackles of negative emotion, they begin to weaken in my life to where I can begin to see them for what they are, and I can begin to work through them and not let them have control over me because they don't have control over me. They don't have control over you. You are in Christ. You are the Father's adopted child. And the Spirit wants that seal to be understood by us. To press into us the spiritual reality of who we truly are and what we truly are. So that we can begin to live in that reality, friends. God desires us to live in that reality, to be led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And that is, that is there for us. That is there for us to experience and to live in. And then lastly, the guarantee of the sealing. Verse 14. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. God's promise is made tangible. It's confirmed by the Spirit's sealing, God's mark on us, the guarantee, Paul says, of our inheritance. And the word translated guarantee is good, but there's a deeper meaning here. Think about down payments or think about the earnest money that you would put down on the purchase of a home. 
That is the first installment of what will be paid at a later date. And so what Paul's saying here is that God has put down the first payment that guarantees he will complete the transaction in the future. And what is that transaction? The ESV translates it as though we are receiving an inheritance, but really the emphasis in this entire passage, verses 3 through 14, is that we are God's inheritance. We are his inheritance. The guarantee that we will be brought back to our, our father, that we will have eternal communion and fellowship with him, with the son and with the spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit on your life is the down payment that that day is coming, that it is certain, it is guaranteed, because God himself has put down the earnest money for that. Everything in verses 3 through 14, the promise that everything will be reconciled, the inheritance that we will enjoy with God, with us being his people, him being our God. All of this is spoken as though it's already happened, but not yet. Not yet. The fullness, when faith gives way to sight, it's coming. And that's what Paul's emphasizing in verse 14. And what Paul is saying for us here in, this, in verses 13 through 14 is not to overlook, do not forget the seal that God has placed on us. Because it's as though he's already put down that down payment. He put down that payment at a great cost to himself. As he watched his own son pay with his own blood. He watched his son pay the price to redeem us from certain destruction. And then he took us to be his very own. And he placed his seal by the Holy Spirit upon us. It came at a very high price, friends. So that he would place that seal upon us. And he would say this to you and I. You are mine. You are mine. So where, where are you today in your faith? Where are you struggling? Where are you hurting? Are you feeling, are you feeling despondent? Are you feeling low? Are you struggling with self-worth and acceptance? With insecurity and fear? Are you struggling with getting out of the bed in the morning? And feelings of hopelessness? Are you tempted to doubt? Are you unsure about the Christian faith? Are you struggling with secret sin that's killing you inside and you feel powerless to stop or to change? You feel so trapped that you could not possibly tell anyone what's going on for fear of rejection. You are not alone. You are not alone. For there is hope for the hopeless and all those who have strayed. Come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, a rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. So lay down, lay down, Westside Church, your burdens. Lay down your shame. All who are broken, lift up your face. Oh, wanderer, come home. You're not too far. So lay down your hurt and lay down your heart and come 
as you are. Come as you are. Come and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and his work of redemption that he has accomplished for sinners like you and sinners like me. Come thirsty. Come hungry. The table is set. You've heard the menu. Now come and eat with him. He welcomes all to come in faith. And he gives us the promise that everyone who comes to me in faith, I will never cast out. So come. This table is for you. This table. Come as you are. Bring your burdens, lay them down, and be reminded again of whose you are and what you have in Jesus. This table is where we're reminded of the fact that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. So only those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit should eat of this meal. Only those who have been sealed by the Spirit. Only those who hear and have believed, who keep hearing, who keep believing, who keep trusting, who keep looking to Jesus. This table is for you. It is where we're reminded of his broken body and his shed blood for us. And so if that is you, if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, if God has claimed you as his very own possession, then you are welcomed at this table. This is a table for all who are sinful, all who are heavy laden, who are, who are, who are uh, uh, pressed down with the, with the burdens of life that we all go through, those seasons of doubt, those seasons of struggle those seasons of regret. If that is you here today, then the good news is that you have a Savior who waits for you, a Savior who waits for you to nourish you and to remind you that you do not have to bear that alone, that you are not alone. You have your Savior by faith, and you have your body, your body, your family that God has united you to as well. We need one another, and here at this, at this table, we're reminded that we do have one another in Jesus Christ. The words of institution are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, when he had given thanks, he took bread, and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the blood of that new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. When we eat and when we drink, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The last thing that I want to say before we eat is that if you are here and you have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that you, perhaps you have heard the gospel, but you have not believed the gospel. You have not given your life to the Lord Jesus. We, uh, we are so glad that you are here and we would plead with you to do that today. That is the response for you. This meal is for those who have given their life to the Lord Jesus, who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so if you were to eat and drink, you would be eating and drinking condemnation upon yourself. And we do not want that for you. We want you to give your life to the Lord Jesus. We want you to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, by faith and by faith alone. So think about what you've heard. And if you have not given your life to the Lord Jesus, even you little theologians, kids, that is a call for you as well. The invitation for you as well is to give your life to Jesus today, to talk to your parents about it, to talk to me about it, to talk to one of your elders about it. And then, kids, we would love to welcome you to the Lord's table. So, the Lord Jesus, 
On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Let's pray, and then we will conclude our service.